Welcome to In the Principal's Office. I'm Angie Dillman, a high school principal. And I'm Michelle Liu, an assistant principal. And if you've ever wondered about the conversations that go on behind closed doors of a principal's office, you've come to the right place. Hi, Michelle. I'm really excited about today. I am too, Angie. I'm really, really excited. Do you want to introduce our guest? Absolutely. We have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Escalante. Dr. Escalante, thanks for being here today. Well, it's a, a really a pleasure and an honor to spend the time with you. We appreciate it. Michelle and I are, as we've talked about a lot here on this podcast, we're both students in the USC EDD program and Michelle is in year one, I'm in year two, and I have been lucky enough to have Dr. Escalante in class twice. So Michelle, you have some catching up to do. This is the first time we're meeting, even though I'm in the program as well. I was selfishly using Angie to get an introduction to you. That's kind of what's happened here. (laughs) So Dr. Escalante, you know, I, in our first semester, I had you for my first leadership class. And there are some things that you told us that I think about a lot, especially some of your experiences, a principal and a superintendent, and probably lots of stuff in between leading through crisis. You know, we've, we've had a few crises these over the last year. And I just wondered, how do you keep yourself going when you're in the middle of it? How do you set priorities? Well, I would tell you, I I faced a few crises in my career as a principal four times and as a superintendent twice, but I, I don't think I've ever faced anything that was as ugly as what you have had to go through as a result of COVID. So I take my hat off to all of you who have fought through that and are still standing. Even though I know I've talked to a lot of superintendent friends and even principal friends, there's a lot of them retiring because they're kind of cooked, but they've gone through a whole lot and they're the ones that kind of keep the engine going. Teachers keep it going in the classrooms, but the engine needs the spark plug and it's all about administrators to make it happen. Yeah, it's definitely been a lot. So I I would tell you this. There's two really basic different kinds of leadership. One of the kinds of leadership you use for that long-term, slow process of improving programs for kids, that takes one kind of leadership. And crisis management takes a whole different kind of leadership. And how you approach it with your staff is absolutely critical. I would almost tell you that long-term leadership that requires working with people and changing their hearts and minds and getting them to improve programs for kids probably is the hardest because it requires long-term focus on the part of the leader to keep the project moving along and trying to figure out exactly what are the next steps with always with a vision of where you ultimately want to end up. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that long-term change, I can think of my job in Fullerton as a superintendent. Now, Fullerton is in a very conservative part of Orange County. But one thing was evident to me is that district needed to pass a general obligation bond to improve its facilities. So I got there on day one and began to build the process to pass a general obligation bond that hadn't been done in 25 years in the district, but it took me about four years of building to do that. So that's one kind of leadership. Crisis management is a whole different thing. And that's where sometimes the rubber just really meets the road and you find out what you're made of personally. 
And I would tell you, unfortunately, that's become even more difficult now than it did five years ago or 10 years ago, and particularly 20 years ago, with the advent of social media being almost gasoline that can be poured on the crisis, managing and providing leadership as a site level administrator or a superintendent has become even that much more difficult. It really has made, you know, things that might normally be kind of small issues really, really big and difficult to determine how many people are behind this, like how much of my community feels this way. And they let you know, (laughs) they let you know, and they have an avenue to access you that you can't ignore. Now, interestingly, 25 years ago, if somebody was unhappy and they went home and they really wanted to put pressure, political pressure on yourself, such as a high school principal, they would probably have to spend a whole lot of time on the phone, calling people, organizing people, trying to build some political momentum to begin to push, whether it be a meeting with you or your superintendent or your school board to get something done. It took a lot of time, energy. Now, somebody, one person places the right post in the right place that's seen by hundreds and thousands of people, all of a sudden you, you as a leader have a crisis to manage. That's what it feels like. And that, that happens all the time. And the sad part about that is it doesn't necessarily have to be true. It could be a misperception on the part of a parent or community member, or it could be a flat untruth where someone is deliberately trying to cause you or, or someone else harm as part of the process. As a leader, you know, we don't have a choice but to try to address the initiative or whatever is put in our lap. So, I mean, I can remember some crises that I've had to deal with. The most famous one that I dealt with back in the 90s was an issue called the Spur Posse, where a group of athletes were having sex with girls at the school. And they got picked up by the media and all of a sudden it became a media event that was all over national television. And it even came to the point that we had, I had people such as uh, news reporters from the BBC who came. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that makes it legitimate, right? BBC. <laughs> yeah, un- undercover young reporters dressed in Levi's and jeans to look like students who attempted to bring cameras on campus. But I got to tell you is even though that was difficult and it was covered by all the media, it would have been 10 times worse as a result of the access of social media. We had Dr. Bolton from Newport. Newport Harbor. Yeah. And he had an, an instant where some students, they did something off campus at a party, like, you know, on the weekend, but it blew up into a social media firestorm. And I mean, had a huge impact on the whole community. It's interesting you bring that up because there's a case currently being considered by the Supreme Court. Determine whether those outside activities that students become engaged with that ultimately disrupt school can they be held accountable for it by you as a school administrator? 
I have been following that. I think that it's, it's a really interesting case. This student, she didn't, she made the JV cheer squad instead of varsity and she complained about it and the program on Snapchat posted a video and it got back to the school. And then there's like this decision tree. Then the school thought it was worthy of discipline. And I think that's where I try to think, would we think it was worthy of discipline what she did? Are we opening a different door of how responsible schools are for students outside behavior? Yeah. You know, it reminds me of one that I had where boyfriend and girlfriend did a sex tape breakup later on. And all of a sudden the boy is sharing it around campus. I mean, none of it happened at school. None of it really was associated with school, but it sure as heck disrupted the school. And I read about this happening not only to students, but to adults, like, you know, sharing information like that. And it's becoming a real problem in society. That's kind of sensitive information getting shared. And we play a role in, in these things in our students' lives. But that's one thing that's so big. And we have been trying to educate our students on the dangers of having that kind of information, that media on your phone, even if it's shared willingly with you. We've learned a lot about you know, what happens when students have this kind of stuff on their phone, let alone share it without another person's permission. Students are putting themselves in huge legal jeopardy, let alone the harm that they're doing to the other student. You probably saw it like an early version of that, but it has only gotten worse. With that social media piece and the way we've evolved so quickly with technology is that there is no precedent for it. It's, it reminds me a lot of what's happening now in this pandemic. Like how, how can you be a school leader in a time where schools are closed? It's only distance learning. Then you have all these rules and regulations. And I see the same thing with technology and social media is that we're learning as we're going. Which is why I think for me, it feels so imperfect and it feels so scattered. It doesn't feel like, well, this is the path. This is the one you take because it's so complicated. What can we do as a school, regardless of responsibility, but what can we do to help bring up this generation so that they know they're informed about what their actions online could mean, not just for the school, but for themselves in the future too. It reminds me of um, a superintendent who told me that one of the teachers online observed a, a student using marijuana during a class session. Oh my gosh. So you tell me. I don't know. This has never happened. <laughs> yeah, I would tell you, I'd be talking to my uh, the district's attorney before I did anything because I'm not sure I've got the answer to that. <sighs> There's an old case that was years ago in Alaska where a student, if I remember right, the story was a student took a, like a blanket or a sheet and wrote across it, bong hits for Jesus and hung it over the side of some auditorium and the school suspended him for that. And ultimately, ultimately the Supreme Court said they couldn't, that he had free speech to do that. So. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in this upcoming Supreme Court case. Are, are we as educators going to have some control, some control, some way, somehow on what a student does associated with an activity? I mean, we all know how to deal with them when it's part of, you know, an away football game or part of a, a study trip. We've got rules and we can deal with it. But what if it's not really tied to school 
but it spills over because the kid goes to school. And how many times has a kid come home or hung out with their friends and, and says like school sucks, but this girl captured it on social media. She didn't do things that were too much different than all kids do, us included, I'm sure. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's just a different world when that gets back to the school and disrupts an activity. And that's exactly. Maybe you didn't lead during COVID, but you have definitely been a leader during things that we've seen and so much more. So when you're on the other side of it and you look back, what in retrospect was most important in keeping your school together and positive? One of the things that as part of the process of hiring people, I just always surrounded myself with people who had a positive perspective. Mm. I think it's incredibly important that you surround yourself with people who want to see the best in the world rather than see the worst in the world. So I think that's incredibly important. And as part of that, the friends and the supporters, the people who you are mentored by need to be those same kind of people. Because you can always, if you spend enough time, try to find the silver lining. You know, as a friend of mine always used to say is where there's crisis, there's profit. There's something you can gain and something you can learn. And when I look back, think about how I've grown personally, as a result of having to deal with all the issues associated with online learning, I would tell you I'm a better teacher and have more skills as a result of that. Now, I wouldn't want anybody to have to go through it or do it unless they had to, but it gave me a whole different set of skills, more arrows in my quiver to be able to do a good job as a teacher. I never thought I would be an online teacher. <laughs> And look at us here. We're recording this and we're all in separate places. It is incredible. So I have a home in Austin, Texas, and I have a place in Redondo and I have a place down in the desert and so forth. And I've had a ball going from place to place to teach my class just so I could tell people I did it there. I played golf in the morning and I taught my class in the afternoon in the desert. I, that has not been my experience. <laughs> not even close. Unfortunately, you know, you're still down there where the rubber meets the road, trying to keep the car moving along because it's yeah. not been easy. I, I so admire high school administrators because it's the toughest job in the business, bar none. I would have to agree with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I know here in Arcadia, we don't have it nearly yeah. as tough as practically anywhere else, but it is, it's really demanding. You know, Angie, I'm not so sure that that's true. Don't underplay how hard you have to work. And Michelle as well, trying to service a community. For myself, I've worked in Palos Verdes a couple of times. I've worked in Hawthorne, Lenox. I mean, I've worked all over the place. It's a different kind of hard mm -hmm. working in all those different places, but it's not any easier in Arcadia. I do think that what you said about when you look back on a crisis, you think about all the, the opportunities that it presented. And I think that we've definitely had so many of those this year. We've grown in so many ways and a lot of parent meetings will probably keep online because more people can come. That's exactly right. I talk to a lot of other principals and superintendents and they're doing the exact same thing, saying to themselves is I can reach more people and be more effective by being online. And some of them are saying, hey, we do both. We're going to do it, live stream it and invite people to the presentation, whatever it might be. 
We've seen that with IEP meetings as well. It's just really nice for parents. It just helps break down those barriers because before we would have parents that would have to take a morning off of work and maybe not get paid and they would have to come in, you know, and then have to arrange childcare if they have other kids. And they've told us, wow, this is really helpful because I can do it on my lunch break. And we have a lot of general ed teachers that are able to join because it's virtual, giving parents the option in person if you would like, because that is nice. But if you can't, or if it's more of a barrier, then we can do a virtual meeting. Here at the school site, we're talking about what are the things that we liked about this year that we'd want to continue. We're definitely talking about what are the things that we'd like to keep online. We want to have online options for students for next year. So I'm hoping we can keep a lot of these digital signatures and things like oh that. Oh my gosh, yes. We can do it now. Do it. All right. So, Dr. Escalante, you've had a lot of different positions in a lot of different places. What do you think? What do you think was your favorite job you ever had? What kind of teacher were you? What subject or what grade? Yeah, that's funny. I was just sort of sitting back and reflecting as you come to the end of you know where you've been and how many places you've been and what you've learned as part of the process. And next year, if I start next year, would be my 50th year around education. Wow. Yeah. So I thought, wow. And I think I'm going to stop at 49. So I really believe that you learn the most by change. If you work in one district and have your whole career in one district, you learn that district's way of doing things. And there may not be anything wrong with that, but you'd be much richer if you had the experience of doing whatever that activity is in two or three districts. You know, if you were the master schedule person, rather than learning it in just one district, what if you learned it in two or three districts and brought those things together, pulled out whatever the best was? So I built my career based on the fact that I was going to get as many experiences as I could so that when I ultimately ended up, and I always wanted to be a superintendent, that somebody couldn't look at me and say, well, you don't know my job. Well, I wanted to be able to say, I know your job. I did it here and I did it there. So I started out as an elementary teacher doing fourth, fifth, and sixth grade and loved it and got my first administrative training. Probably some of my best administrative training was at age 28, I was the president of the Teachers Association in Hawthorne Elementary School District. And I had a superintendent who helped me and groomed me because he knew what I wanted to do. So at the same time I was doing that, hard to make a living with a wife and two kids. So I taught night school, I taught English at the secondary level for about four or five years while I was teaching at the elementary level during the daytime. And my first job out of the classroom administrative was they always take the black and brown guys and we always end up being the director of state and federal projects. But in a small district, it was cool in Hawthorne Elementary because you got to do a lot of different things. It was so small. So I was an assistant to the business manager. So I did all the business functions, helped, did the consolidated application, did a lot of budget work and work with the principals on their school plans. So I got this great experience. And I think one of the best experiences I got out of that, I came to understand that using direct authority by just telling people what to do was the least effective way to lead. So here I was, the director of state and federal projects, trying to get 
principals to do their school plans. And principals don't like doing school plans. Right? Michelle's working on ours right now. You know, I just finished it. I just finished it. You want to know the relief I have felt since yeah. I finished that plan? <laughs> Nobody likes doing that job. So I would have to do is work with the principals and suggest and kind of coerce them, get them to do that. So I learned a lot about leadership in that job because I had no real direct line authority over that. So after doing that for four years, I was an elementary principal. Sweetest, sweetest job in the business. Everybody loves you. Kids love you. Teachers love you. You know their families, the kids' families. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job. But it limits you because you only, you know, maybe have three to 500 kids. So I wanted something bigger than that. So I left the elementary district that I was in and went to the high school and went to Hawthorne High School as an assistant principal and learned all about blood and gore and guts. And I came to learn what sex and drugs and rock and roll was all about. Because you don't learn it in elementary school. I did that for a couple of years. One of the things I learned about that also is where you work is important to you in your progression for promotion. So I worked in low socioeconomic school districts and needed the opportunity of going to a higher socioeconomic school district. So I went to Santa Monica High School, which is a higher socioeconomic district, where the board member said to me, well, can you work with our kids? Don't they have eyes and nose and two arms? Yeah, like a, they're different, different, yeah, like different species of kids. Kids are kids, but I learned that there's a lot of perception. You learn to work in one socioeconomic area, you may not understand how to work in another. So socioeconomics was incredibly important to me as I moved my career, not just grade level or position, whatnot. So I went to Santa Monica High School, only went there for one year and ended up as the principal at Rolling Hills High School in Palos Verdes. High, high socioeconomic. As I said to Angie, I was the second youngest person on the staff or third youngest. Oh, no. On the, the older staff members, every time I had some initiative I wanted to move along, they just kind of pat me on the head and said, go sit over there. It'll go away if you sit there for a long enough, long enough time. So I was there for a couple of years, and then it turned out that we closed my school. We closed three high schools and consolidated into one. I had never been a middle school principal. So the superintendent asked me, do you want to put the new middle school together? Because I thought, what a great opportunity. I'd been in elementary. I'd been a high school. I actually took a cut in salary so that I could say that I knew how to work in a middle school. Mm -hmm. I put the middle school together for a year. And before I knew it, they were knocking on my door. And I went to Long Beach and took a 4,000 kid school which was like a small city and there for a couple of years. And then I was drafted back to Palos Verdes as their business person. And then from Palos Verdes, I went to Fullerton as superintendent. And that was an important piece too, is, you know, learning the business side is incredibly valuable if you want to be a superintendent because board members want to know, you know, how to handle the money. Did that job for Fullerton for seven years and then went to I always wanted to do a big urban. And so Glendale came up. I had living in Hermosa Beach and I could drive that. And there was no place else I could drive that made sense. 
So it was there for seven years, loved it, and then ended up at USC. Great run. You asked me, Angie, which job did I like the best? Yeah, what was your favorite? I liked them all. all They're right. all just different. It's kind of like when you have kids, you like this kid better than that kid. No, you didn't like them both. You just, they're different. Yeah. So that's what I found. That, you know, the, I love the blood and gore and guts of being at a high school and the energy and where else? I mean, if I had the job I really wanted, it would have been to own the Lakers or own the Rams. <laughs> right. So no, see, that's the job that. I really want. <laughs> but, but here I was, Angie, you're a high school principal. You own a football team. You own a basketball team. You own a soccer team. You own them all. Performing arts. She has her own band. <laughs> I always used to call the athletic department was the candy store for me. So it was always fun to hang around and go down to watch and see what all the athletes were doing. To answer your question, I can't tell you one that I didn't like. I liked them all because all of them taught me something different. They were all purposeful. For example, when I got the job, I was at Santa Monica High School. I was offered on the same day the job at Redondo High School. So Redondo, I had the choice of Redondo or Rolling Hills High School. And Redondo paid more money than Palos Verdes. Why do you think I went to Palos Verdes? Because it was a different set of kids. Mm -hmm. Socioeconomic. And I always will never forget that lady saying to me, that board member is, can you work with our kind of kids? I never got that question again. So it was purposeful. And I, I think at that time it cost me about five grand a year, but it was worth it to me. So I've been, you know, elementary, middle, and twice a high school principal. And so I would tell you, Angie, don't stay too long. I can't, I don't know how much more change I can handle right now. <laughs> Uh, it's fun. It's fun. And the, the fun part about going, particularly another district, you get to reinvent yourself. That is true. Okay? That is true. So you had an issue that you knew was an issue when you came yeah. in where you stubbed your toe and did something wrong and you're still paying the price for something you did when you first got there. You get to go to that new place and start all over and don't stub your toe again. Every time you go to another place, you're better and better. That is definitely true. This is my first time meeting you, but it seems like you're super self-reflective. You are positive and you look at what you can learn from a situation, which is something I think for me is a good, it's a good reminder to be the same way, embracing the change and being really thoughtful about as a leader, what I want for myself, where I have the holes and the gaps and maybe pursuing those things. Follow good people. If you Ooh. Yeah, if you know good people who will give you good experiences, it's critical. And I can tell you some people who are not so good that I learned some great lessons. Mm. So be purposeful in your moves and always have the courage to make it. Most people who don't make the moves, it's because they don't have the courage to do it. That is true. People really are afraid of, of change and it is scary. It is scary. But once you've done it, Angie, a few times, because it's really fun to go into that new place, reinvent yourself. And I actually learned it from a teacher, a teacher who worked for me, who was a surfer dude. He was a goofy surfer dude. He got a job at Cerritos College teaching English. He was like a different guy. All of a sudden, he was wearing button collar shirts and he wasn't goofy. He said, I got a chance to reinvent myself. And I didn't want to be a goofy surfer guy anymore. 
You can learn from people all, all around. Yeah. Good ones and not so good ones. Well, Dr. Escalani, we're, we're right up against the time that we promised we would take. If you're available, we'd love to have you back. I want to hear a lot more about, we talk a lot about finding the right fit and the right match for places, even for yourself. When we're looking for the next thing, how do we know if it's the right fit? So we'd love to have you back and pick your brain a little bit more. Yeah. And I do a lot of coaching on people who are looking for different opportunities. And I always say it doesn't do any good to talk about it. Just go do it. You don't have to make the decision until somebody's offered you the job. That's true. And Michelle and I talk a lot about there are opportunities all around. Just have to do it. Yep. Be open and take the shot. I mean, I interviewed and got jobs and then I got the job as superintendent of San Diego Unified. And three quarters of the way through the whole process, I just bailed out because it wasn't right. So don't be afraid to get yourself out there. Yeah. Go get yourself out there and make a decision. Surround yourself with great people who can mentor you and help you and ask. I worked for 18 superintendents before I became one. Talking ones who were short-term, ones who were fired, ones who were interim. And all of them taught me something. All of them. Fun to be with you. A pleasure. And, you know, I hope somebody enjoys it and listens to it. They definitely will. Like all the stuff you've been saying, I just feel very reflective now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate us wherever you get your podcast to help others find our show. And we love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at In the Principles Pod and on Twitter at Principles Pod. And we'll see you next time in the Principles Office. <laughs> <laughs>